0: All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome podcast listeners. We have an awesome show for you today. It is Friday, April the 12th. We got two people. Kevin is the founder and CIO of Crescat Capital and is behind the firm's global macro investment process and systematic equity valuation model. Tavi serves is a global macro analyst and has been on their investment team for over five years with a focus on global cross-asset research and has built Crescat's global macro model as well. Welcome to the show, Kevin Smith and Tavi Costa. Thank you, Mab.
1: Thank you, Mab.
0: So, fellas, it's great to have you here today. You had one of the better performing hedge funds of 2018. I would love to hear for those particularly who aren't familiar... Walk us through a little on Crestcat, your origin story, and and there's two of you, so I'd love to hear you guys sprinkle in. Feel free to add a little personal background too. Sure. This is Kevin,
2: and my background, I have an undergrad degree in economics from Stanford. I I went to business school at the University of Chicago after a stint at, at a public accounting firm for a few years and got into the business with Kidder Peabody as a high net worth broker. So my background is really with a high net worth client base That I've maintained over the years and took a job after Kidder with a local brokerage firm here in Denver where I started an asset management division for them. And that's kind of where my first product started our, our large cap long only strategy, which has got about a 20 year track record now and a a long, short equity hedge fund that I started there as well. And uh, I started Crescat in 2006, and that was to launch a new strategy, our global macro uh, cross-asset strategy that we've had since 2006, and moved a lot of the clients over and from the other strategies, so was able to continue those strategies as well in the track record. That's just kind of a brief background on Crescat. Tavi joined me about five and a half years ago. Tavi, why don't you give a little bit about your background?
1: Sure. So I originally born and raised in Brazil, I guess, and moved to the U.S., recruited to uh, play tennis in college back in the days and moved to Liberty University. Then I, I played there for a bit. Then I moved to uh, St. Louis for a private school, finished up college there, moved to Colorado, started working for Kevin. And um, now I'm, I'm just more focused on the macro part of it. I'm usually... The guy behind the, most of the modeling of, of macro research and just in general of helping and managing the portfolio. So I guess my introduction is a lot shorter than Kevin, but uh, still young, but a lot going on.
0: <laughs> so look, you guys put out a lot of great research. Some of it's contrarian, but not always, but thoughtful in different ways. And we'll eventually get to one of my favorite headline pieces you had, which is where you guys talk about the macro trade of the century. But why don't you guys give us a brief overview of y'all's framework for how you think about investing. Global macro means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So how do you guys think about the world? And maybe we can start out as a jumping off point to talk about kind of where we are. What does the world look like today? That can mean economic cycles, markets, and we'll go from there. We
2: view the world through a little bit different of a lens than a lot of other macro shops, given the equity background that I told you about, really starting off with a, a long-only equity strategy that that was a quant, fundamental, value-oriented type strategy that I, and the equity quant model that I developed behind that more than 20 years ago, and then the long-short equity hedge fund applying that same model to both both longs and shorts, but really what developed out of that over the years was that. Our models were really guiding us more to bigger picture themes in addition to being able to to select individual stocks. Bigger macro themes like in in 06, 07, we had the the housing bubble theme and we were short mortgage companies and, and banks. And we were short Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns back then just based on our model and this housing bubble theme that we had developed when we launched the Global Macro Fund, it was really to have that long, short equity portfolio be a part of it, but also to have bigger macro themes and be able to trade across other asset classes, commodities, currencies, interest rates, and so forth. So that's kind of the evolution in how we think. And we really started developing more macro models as well, three or four years ago, more intensely than above and beyond just the equity quant uh, model that, that we have. And that's how we view the world, Tavi. You got something to add to that? No, I think that it's mostly it. we we
1: do a lot of aggregation of macro fundamental data, creating systematic models, and but it's uh, mostly a discretionary shopper. We just use the models to help us to guide on on coming up with ideas. And I think the three highest conviction themes and how we see the world today. Number one is essentially we think that U.S. stocks and global stocks in general, but mostly U.S. are historically overvalued for several factors that we can mention later here. The the second one would be the China being a, a historic, perhaps the largest credit bubble we've seen in history, which is in line with uh, macro trade of the year. And the third one would be long precious metals and more of a uh, why we think precious metals could be the, the perfect safe haven for the, the turn in the cycle here that
0: we think it's already kind of started. That's a great lead in. Let's take those suckers one at a time. Let's start with valuations. How do you guys look at it? What are the indicators? Anything looks good? Are you short the world? What's going on? Everything started
1: with, we start looking at valuations and realize the valuations are historically high in in several indicators. One of them being, uh, we mentioned eight of them on previous letters and price to book and EV to sales and price to sales and EV to EBITDA cyclically adjusted EV to for cash flow adjusted, CAPE ratio, market cap to GDP, all those are above the 90 percentile historically So that really drove us to, you know, think about adding some other economic indicators to overlay the research and some technicals. And that was really the the creation of the macro model that we put out. That macro model combines 16 factors. so It's a much simpler version of what I just described. And and the 16 factors is economic indicators, fundamental data, and a few technicals, and the score goes back all the way to 1987 and realized that the score today is about two percentage points away from record overvalue levels. And when you backtest that model, we also realized that it timed perfectly the previous market peaks in the tech in the housing bubble and also timed very well the bottom of those two markets. And this is not just one factor that we looked at. This is just obviously one part of, of the research and that kind of drove us to look a little further and start thinking about what we see the world. The second thing is is kind of lining up all these macro indicators, which started by looking at 30-year yields in several countries in the world today. And we realized that 30-year yields are actually lower than Fed funds rate, which is an overnight rate. And actually that problem is happening with 15 economies today. And New Zealand just joined a pact last week or a few weeks ago. When you line that up across all the way back to 1994 or so, what you see is that that distortion tends to reach an extreme every time you're at the, at the peak of a cycle. And what's unique today, though, is the amount of countries showing that imbalance. And that has a lot of meanings in general, one of them being a global yield curving version problem, which is negative for stocks, obviously. And the second one would be what we see as perhaps a demand for for treasuries just because of U.S. rates being relatively high. Uh, when compared to global rates in general. And the third one would be the dollar. You know, that essentially drives the dollar to rise. It, it makes sense to be for the dollar. What you're going to find is that, obviously, we we have a view on the dollar, but we also have a view on gold. And they don't go against each other, actually. But uh, we'll elaborate on that.
2: The 16-factor macro model that we have, it, it combines both the valuation indicators and kind of length of the business cycle and timing of the business cycle indicators. So that you know, about... About 12 of of the indicators are really more macro timing type indicators, and maybe just four of them are the valuation indicators, even though Tavi ticked off about eight valuation indicators that we think are near highest ever.
0: So how do you guys express that? So, you know, as you look around the world, is this something that you say, look, I'm just going to take a backseat, don't want to be invested in equity markets? Or you say, no, we want to balance it long and short, or no, we're just short everything. And and also uh, secondarily, like how do you incorporate timing of this trade into your thesis?
2: We're a tactical global macro shop, and, and our hedge funds have been net short equities for really two years now. That hurt us in 2017. We were clearly too early, uh, being being focused too much on the valuation indicators, not enough on the timing. Indicators was the problem. And that's really when we developed this whole macro timing model above and beyond just the valuation indicators to get a better sense of are we really at the peak of a business cycle and, and record overvalued the way we think we are. We developed the model. It told us we were in the hundredth percentile for record overvalued, record late cycle back in 2017. And it gave us a conviction to stick with that net short equity position in both of our, of our hedge funds so we are pretty much grounded in our macro views in terms of how we express it in the portfolio it was tough going into january of 2018 when the market was still raging higher we we had it had down year we were down in january in both of our hedge funds and then and then february came on volmageddon and we had a huge month and we were we were right back on track and then over the course of the rest of last year, global equity markets really peaked out in January of last year. And that was most of our equity short positions are not just U.S. We you know we also have a lot of China-related positions, other housing bubbles where we're short banks like in Canada and Australia. At any rate, when the emerging markets really started to falter in June, we had some other big months and then finished really strong in the fourth quarter just by staying net short, according to our models. And Now, obviously, you know, it's hardest and we're having a pullback here so far year to date because we still continue to be net short. But you have to ask yourself, was the fourth quarter the beginning of the bear market or this first quarter really more like a a bear market rally? Or is this business cycle going to continue? And I really believe that the fourth quarter was more like the beginning of of something in, in our favor. And. So we're willing to stick with our models and our views, and we're we're staying net short. We believe we are in the early stages of bear market.
0: You mentioned a pretty big gravitational force, which there's been some pretty strong opinions on each side, and that being China. You know, a lot of people have lined up as extremely bearish; others, extremely bullish. Why don't you guys walk us through your thesis, what you're thinking about China, as I know it's a major driver of kind of how you guys think about a lot of things globally.
1: Essentially, it all started by looking at the big picture of, of global debt and imbalances that we see in the world today. And we were looking at the past largest credit bubbles we had in history over the last 30 years all the way back to Japan in the 1990s and the Asian crisis and, and housing bubble and, and so forth and the European debt crisis too. And if you look at that, the average of total debt to GDP ratio of those imbalances were close to 245, 250%. And today in 2018, uh, or today's 2019, but 2018, the most recent number for total debt to GDP and the largest ratios in, in the world today that average is close to 269%. And again, this is just a big picture. It's not a timing indicator. We realized this. If you look back in 2017, 16, you would still see this massive imbalance. But we wanted to dig in and see what was at the center, perhaps, of some of these imbalances. Not, not the answer for all, but at the center of it. And perhaps is China and we found that China, we calculated on balance sheet assets of Chinese banks relative to GDP. And what we found is that it's it's much higher than it was in the U.S. housing bubble and the European debt crisis in 2011. It's above the 300 uh, percent range. And that doesn't include what we see as the off balance sheet assets, which they admitted to in their financial stability report that they put out every December And it's somewhere close to another $45 trillion of off balance sheet assets so we're looking in a very conservative way by just looking at on balance sheet and the, the growth of assets, you know, all the way back to the global financial crisis is close to 400 percent. You know, that completely dwarfs places like the U.S. and Japan and your eurozone going back to those times. And you got to think about what's the consequential damage of all this debt build up of throughout all these years of China. And we think that it's, it's a Chinese currency that is likely to suffer and depreciate against the dollar. There is uh, research that we put out that was kind of interesting. There's a lot of factors. I'll give you a few. On this, But uh, we looked at uh, the change in current account in multiple countries from the global financial crisis to today versus the change in currency value uh, during the same period. And what you find, first you uh, you find Argentina being your outlier. Your current account of Argentina shrank significantly during that period. And at the same time, the currency devalued close to 90%. But then uh, what you find is this quadrant of currency devaluation risk, which we see China, Hong Kong, Saudi Arabia... Again, it's just one factor, but what's interesting is that China is the only country in the world that its current account actually shrank significantly since the global financial crisis, and at the same time, its currency actually appreciated against the dollar. So we think that that's kind of interesting as it's perhaps an imbalance. And uh, also, you see there, Hong Kong is, you know, all those three countries that I just mentioned are all peg currencies. And obviously, Hong Kong is another one that we have uh, a strong opinion uh, against the Hong Kong dollar as well. But that's not the only thing. What we hear most people saying is, well, but, you know, the PBOC got their back and essentially they're just going to stimulate the economy. They're never going to really stumble into a contraction in the economy in China, And maybe that could be true in some way. And one way to look at the the Chinese currency as well is just looking at, if you look at the required reserve ratio of major banks in, in China today, and you line that up with the Chinese currency, they follow each other remarkably close all the way back to the 2000s. And more recently, there's kind of an alligator mouth of Chinese currency actually appreciating at the same time, and it's required deposit reserve ratio. It's actually being reduced twice this year already. So we see that as a kind of an alligator mouth and perhaps a great setup for us to be short the currency right now.
2: And the market also- expects China to drop its reserve ratio another three times throughout the rest of the year as well. Something I just ran across this morning.
1: The other part of it, too, is look at the correlation between Chinese stocks and the Chinese currency. It's at the highest level. One way to look at it is that looking at the 52-week rolling correlation of the two assets. And what you find is that it's the highest positive correlation in history, all the way back to 1990s. And then it's interesting because we think it's that that relationship is really unsustainable. Because well, first it started with both declining in 2018. That was really kind of the reason why the correlation started to get strong. But it's more recently that, that the spike really caused the correlation to to rise. It was it was because of both going up together. And uh, so we think that uh, you know, if China in the fourth quarter of 2018, the median stock in China was down close to 40 percent. I don't know any country in history that has had a such a situation and that wasn't a, a bad picture, economically speaking. So essentially, China now has been stimulating somehow through the PBOC and so forth and different channels of liquidity intervention. That should have an effect on the currency at some point. We're going to stay grounded and still keep our negative views on the currency. But
0: What do you see as the challenge for so many of these trades is, what is the catalyst? I mean, they're often obvious in retrospect. So many times, fragile markets or systems, it's not necessarily needs a catalyst. But is there one that you think that kind of triggers this as far as with regards to China and its effect on the rest of the world? It's hard to say what exactly
2: the catalyst will be. Because if we knew what the shock was going to be, it wouldn't exactly be a shock to the world. Yet there's so many possible things that it could be. You know, when you look at the markets in general today and this rip-roaring rally that we've had across global equity markets and, you know, China being one of the leaders here year to date, you know, there's a lot of hope over things like the trade deal and, you know, over the Fed pausing its interest rate hikes. There's a lot of hope over, there's narratives going around that stocks Stocks are still cheap. They're reasonable on a P.E. basis, which is what we go out of our way to dispel here. But there's a lot of hope that's driving things right now. It could be something with the trade deal going awry. It could be um, something with capital outflows in China, some kind of uh, real estate housing crisis within China. It's really hard to say where the shock is going to come from. You know, something with, the, you know, already with the Fed's interest rate hikes of 250 basis points over the last three years, we think is already putting tremendous pressure onto China. It's hard to say exactly where it's going to come from. But if I had to to bet on something, I would bet it it comes from some kind of of, uh, disappointment with respect to the trade deal. What's interesting about this stuff on the, on the trade deal is that uh, I don't see a
1: lot of people talking about this, but if there's an agreement or a disagreement between China and the U.S., that would still result in a net decline of, of China's current account balance, which, you know, I, I can't really see how China could sustain such an indebted economic model for too long with the current account turning negative somehow. So it's uh, I don't think that's really being priced in correctly in the market right now.
0: What sort of odds maker chances you give this of unwinding in an orderly fashion? Is this something that could just kind of go sideways for a while? As a macro shop, always trying to think of the other side of the trade, what sort of odds you guys give this being a orderly wind down? It's not what we're used to seeing in
2: economic cycles and particularly given the imbalances that that we have today and yet you know i think china has gone out of its way to try to show the world that that things are orderly that the currency can be man- managed in a in a tight range that they can pull out all kinds of fiscal and monetary stimulus to keep the economy growing but one of the things that that we really think could lead to um to a disorderly credit bust is global liquidity t- today is the shrinking of the fed's balance sheet already over the last Year and a half or so, and and the rate of change in global central bank assets because of, of QT in particular, uh, and the and the global M two rate of change growth. We we put out a chart uh, just a week ago or so that 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 showed that when you look at both global M two growth and the rate of growth of central bank assets, they both went negative on a rate of change basis year over year, and that that's the the first time we've ever seen that. In this business cycle, for sure, and people think that that because the Fed has has paused, that it's a, a bullish sign. And, and normally, when the Fed pauses, or in, in particularly when they reverse their monetary policy late in the business cycle, it's it's not a positive sign at all. It's a response usually to to a crisis, and so. Um, I don't know. That's just something else we, we look at.
1: In line with that thought, I mean, one way people can see this is uh, of uh, especially looking at credit markets is looking at the two-year yield. If you look at the U.S. two-year yield and you log that chart, you know, all the way back to I think it goes back to the 70s or so, you can kind of draw a, this this multi-year resistance line. And every time the chart, this line kind of touches this multi-year resistance line and the two-year yield begins to fall significantly we we've been in the turn in the business cycle to a recession that happened in the, in '08 and the tech bust and all the way back to the that double dip recession in the '80s and uh, so you know it's just uh we think that it's uh, be wary of when credit markets start to uh, price in that the Fed is gonna have to cut rates uh, right you know very late in the cycle so. Uh, I think that's in line with, uh, with with Kevin, I guess. The other thing we did looking at credit markets that I thought was interesting is there has been a lot of attention uh, on three-month versus 10-year yields recently with that inversion a few weeks ago. But, you know, we, we we looked in a much more comprehensive way, so we built this model that looks at all the 44 uh, possible spreads in the, in the yield curve in the U.S. It looks at all, you know, how percentage of inversions of the yield curve. And what you find in this chart is that above 50% of the, the yield curve in the U.S. Is, is inverted today. And it's just as high as it was at the peak of the housing in the tech bubble. So, you know, looking at that, I mean, it's kind of hard to see how credit markets are not <laughs> clearly pricing in uh, what seems to be a, a recession, uh, inevitable recession in the near term,
2: at least to us. Well, at least an inevitable bear market, you know, leading to a recession. That's right. And you know, the, we think the bear market has to come first. I mean, a lot of a lot of people are citing some crazy st- statistics with respect to the, the yield curve yeah. inversion in and, and the average yield curve apologist out there today you know says we have two more years of of great times now and and you know they're not, they're not looking at the whole picture i mean 73 74 uh, 1969 i mean 73 74 in particular the bear market started 6 months before the yield curve inverted 69 it started immediately as the yield curve inverted 2000 that bear market started immediately as the yield curve inverted and so um, this idea of you have two years, you know, it's, it may be coming from averaging in one or two possible false signals, but and of course 2006 is the elephant in the room there because. In 2006, yes, it, it took two years before the recession hit. But but guess what started in 2006? That was the peak of the housing bubble, and the yield curve nailed it. If you were short home builders and, and mortgage stocks, and in in 2006 you crushed it because that those stocks peaked out in late 2005 and you know in banks shorting banks starting in early 2000 early to mid 2007 was was you know so waiting for the recession to to come to turn bearish is a really bad idea
0: so as you guys talked about there's kind of three legs to this trade stool the third being precious metals and precious metals are something that Man, they've been quiet for a long time, and the media has been pretty quiet, which usually is, is a good thing. Walk us through why you think that that's a interesting area for investment.
2: We have a, a lot of reasons to be bullish on, on precious metals. We think we've been through, uh, depending upon how you count it, either a five- or a seven-year bear market, particularly for the, the uh, precious metals mining stocks. And when you look at the macro timing indicators of yield curve inversions, uh, for instance, and go back to the past two two cycles in, in 2000 when the yield curve first inverted, looking at three and five year yields versus versus the Fed funds rate when they inverted in, in, in 2000 and again in 2006. That was when the gold to S and P ratio really started to take off. And if if you if you just look at it in this way, you don't have to be a gold bug. You don't have to try to even value gold stocks. You know, just look at the macro timing signals of when to buy gold versus the S and P. From two thousand to two thousand two, the gold to S and P ratio went up two hundred percent. And then from oh six to, to two thousand nine, it went up three hundred percent. But we have a number of other valuation indicators that we look at too that that make gold attractive to us.
0: And how do you make the distinction between the precious metal and the underlying equities? Is it something you treat as two different buckets? You compare them to each other as as find one that is more attractive, or you just put on the trade and and do both?
2: We look at them each in individually as an investment in and of itself. We we you know we all we also if you think of our portfolio and our global macro hedge fund, you can think of it as three major overriding themes, a short global equity theme that's largely tilted towards US equities, a long precious metals theme, and a short China Yuan theme. And you know, that's kind of our macro trade of the of the year, if you will, is is a, a short global equities versus a, a long gold in China Yuan terms. But but each of those three legs really can be viewed on its own, you know, or the whole thing could be viewed in terms of a
0: portfolio. You guys have a lot of other themes as I was flipping through one of your pieces and I'll kind of give you a carte blanche to talk about any of these, but you have a number of ideas from security and defense to the genomic revolution to the Aussie debt crisis and Canadian housing bubble. Man, that's a lot. Which of those particularly stand out do you guys think is being a big opportunity or something that you think is an interesting area for examination? Well, we we think they're all interesting in and of their own rights. So a, a lot of the Canadian
2: housing bubble and and Australian debt crisis themes are, are really. Housing bubble and high consumer indebtedness to GDP housing type bubbles that are related to to China and and the Chinese capital outflows that have been pouring into those for so many years, propping up those housing bubbles and and enforcing the the citizens of of those countries to have to go into extraordinary debt in and of themselves to chase these housing bubbles. And so it's somewhat related to our China theme, but they're housing bubbles in their own right and pretty interesting themes on the short side of, of the portfolio. We are tactically net short and so looking for short themes, but we're not we're not perma bears by any means. We, we and we fully intend to, to get aggressively net long when. When our macro model is telling us we're in the depths of a recession and and stocks are cheap, again we do have themes. That said, we do have themes on the long side too, above and beyond precious metals and precious metals mining stocks. We uh, and that those would be our cybersecurity theme. Really, it used to be a security and defense stock theme. The defense stock portion of it just got too expensive and frothy for our taste. So it's really. More of a cybersecurity theme now, where we, we we like companies like Palo Alto Networks and Fortinet and Checkpoint and CyberArk that score really well in our fundamental equity model and and have have still great growth characteristics going for them today. Even in a recession, I think cybersecurity is going to be an important spend area for people and for and for corporations. Genomic revolution. Really, that's a theme that we're ex- excited to be long-term investors in. I-, I think it's the next great macro theme, secular macro theme, given the advancements in gene therapy and gene editing. And, and that's just a place that we want to be. T- Tavi, you got anything to add on that? Uh, if I would add, it would be more on the uh,
1: China-related themes, which is, you know, there's another one that we have, the Asian contagion, which allows us to be short some of the emerging markets, which are linked to uh, to China but Canada for instance in Australia or uh, really um, derivatives of the Chinese theme. Uh, and what's interesting about Canada is we put out the stats a few, uh, maybe about now three months ago. But it's very interesting looking at Canadian non-financial stocks and realize that 82%, I believe, of, of those Canadian companies were losing money on a free cash flow basis. And at the same time as, as their unemployment rate is near record lows. And, and then, you know, you start thinking about you know, the distortions in the housing market in places like Canada – Australia too, but Canada. We had a I think, I think the IMF came out with a report. They call I think the Housing Watch, and uh, they put out a, a ton of numbers that are kind of interesting. You can model them out and and see and kind of create a model with all the metrics that they provide and a few of them being price to income ratio and price to rent or, or just credit growth in general. And, and when you combine all those factors together, you see how Canada is just in, in another in another uh, dimension. And, and can, uh, China is not even part of that research. For some reason, China and I think Hong Kong are not part of the countries that they cover by the IMF on that research on housing, but that's just goes to show how how incredibly um overvalued is, is the whole entire housing market in, in places like Canada and Australia. It's being kind of exacerbated by all the capital outflows from, from China, perhaps from the elites and so forth and the higher class economically from China trying to get their money out and investing in places like real estate in, in Canada. And uh, so we think that essentially the banks in those places are kind of holding the bag and are the ones that are likely to suffer. And looking at the valuations of those banks, uh, they're, they look a lot like you know at the, uh, the US here, uh, the American banks uh, back in, in the peak of the housing bubble. Um, some of those banks, in, especially in Canada, already kind of peaked in, in 2018, some at the beginning of the year, others at the end of the year, but they still look very, I guess, historically overvalued. And so we, we find a lot of uh, opportunity on the short side in those two, two places, especially.
0: How are you guys expressing these trades most of the time? Is it going after indexes, individual names? Is it through futures, through options, derivatives? What's the, what's the main way to think about a lot of these thematics?
2: all of the above really we have a an equity model where we score individual stocks we score 2000 of the most liquid global equities that trade on a US exchange and then we'll we'll go into a foreign market and and, and apply our model to stocks in those markets too but, but our model on a on a daily basis automatically scores these top 2000 US listed stocks And so we trade individual stocks, long and short. We will trade ETFs uh, when it makes sense. Our twilight and utilities theme, for instance, is an interesting one to talk about because actually utility stocks are the worst scoring sector in our fundamental equity model today on a valuation basis. They're the most overvalued relative to their own fundamental metrics in in, in history they have the most debt that they've ever had in history and on an aggregate basis the entire sector generates negative free cash flow and has for the last several years it's really amazing that the world perceives utility stocks to be a defensive sector that people want to chase when, when it's late in the business cycle and we found that utility stocks, actually, their low beta is attributable to the fact that they go up less than the market in rising markets. But we found that the beta is is about 0.9 or 0.95 in, in bear markets. And so they get clobbered along with the rest of the market in bear markets. And they're the most overvalued that they've ever been. So that's a trade that we'll express through, actually, because they all score terrible, we'll use an ETF. And because the volatility is so low, we have put options on the XLU ETF, for instance, because we think that's just you know a terrible m- mismatch and an incredible opportunity at what we think is to, to short something at the peak of a cycle.
0: This is an idea that I haven't heard that much about in the general media and social threads. I wonder if it's just something that people think are just complacent about utility stocks and just picture them as always being safe. I remember reading an old Schiller paper that looked at sector PEs, CAPE ratios on various sectors. And I think he had, at one point, utilities hitting like a 50 or 60 CAPE ratio in the roaring 20s just goes to show you can have a bubble in just about anything in boring utilities. But I wonder why no one is really talking about this. Is it something you guys have any, any opinion on?
2: Not only is no one talking about it, hedge funds and, and other investors are record overweight utility stocks right now. And of course, they're hitting all, all time highs. But uh, in the um, 1929 crash and you know through 1929 to the, the bottom of the market in 1932, utilities were down 95 percent. Shiller-Cape ratios were absolutely right. I and mean, they were down, down just as much as the market, 92 percent or whatever it was during that crash. Utilities even int- uh, more interesting when you overlay with the macro
1: research and looking at, we put out this uh, research on uh, what we call the battle of safe havens and looking at the relationship between treasuries and U.S. treasuries, 10-year uh, treasuries versus utilities, uh, stocks. And what you found is that you know every time they start to diverge from each other, uh, in other words, uh, treasuries begin to rise as utilities begin to fall, it, it tends to be you know that tends to happen at the at the end of the business cycle and so one way to look at that to measure that relationship is again look at the 52 week rolling correlation of the two the two uh, indices and uh, what you find is that in in 2000 and also 2007 kind of mid 2007 that correlation turned negative uh, for the first time right at the peak of the market. And right now, more recently, we just had our first uh, print of a negative uh, 52-week correlation between, uh, between the two. So it's, uh, it's kind of interesting uh, when you looked at that way as well.
0: That's fascinating. I definitely need to look some more into that. I think that's a really interesting area. So as, as people listen to this podcast, whether it's professional investors, individuals across the board... Obviously, the first answer is they call you guys up, email you, allocate to your fund. But for people who believe in your worldviews or some of these ideas, what do you think are the kind of the main muscle movements or levers that would be a good takeaway from this portfolio? Is it most people should think about perhaps reducing their equity allocation? Should they think about more from the standpoint of hedging and from buying puts? Is Should it be reducing exposure to China? What, what do you think are kind of the main... Takeaways for someone who has a traditional buy and hold global sixty forty sort of allocation.
2: Sure, I think that people really need to to think about doing some some uh, more tactical asset allocation, not not just being a, a buying hold forever investor. I mean, there there are important times when you need to uh, to look at at the valuation of, of, and and where you are in a, in a business cycle. I mean, you look at the market cap to, to gdp right now for the overall us market and it's the highest it's ever been at a you know 140 percent market cap to, to gdp you know above where it was in the tech bubble in, in, in 2000 and uh, there's been so much um focus on on buy and hold and long-term investing in equities and equities and etfs and and it's great i mean they have a great place in investors portfolio i just think people should think about becoming increasingly defensive today look at some alternative asset classes you know of course like like our funds but things like gold which have been left left for dead now for the past 5 to 7 years one thing that we look at is is the um, s&p to silver ratio for instance and it's at the highest ratio that it's been since the tech bubble silver of course is like gold on on steroids when gold gets into a bull market there's there's some really cheap Commodity asset classes out there, and in this, what we call the the everything bubble, that we think has largely been driven by by the Fed and global central banks' um, interest rate and QE policies over over the, you know since the global financial crisis, it really has not contributed to rampant economic growth. It's it's contributed to to asset bubbles across global equities, across credit, across real estate, you know around the globe. And if you participated in that, if you've been fortunate enough to be among the, you know, those who have savings that have they've been put to work in the in the markets, you, you know, you you've done great, and it's just time to, to think about, you know, t- taking some off the table and, and positioning a little bit for a tactical, um, you know, for a business cycle correction, and and I mean the risks today are enormous. You know, they're, they're just getting back to mean. Valuation multiples, you're looking at a 40% kind of correction in equities. And when you get into business cycle downturns, market doesn't tend to stop at at the mean. Is it going to be as bad as the, as the tech bust or the global financial crisis? I don't know. I don't know what kind of rabbits the central banks are going to pull out of their hat this time around. But if they really do go for the, the massive QE button early this time around, boy, precious metals sure should have a place in someone's portfolio, I, I think. Uh, in this cycle, um, Tavi, you got anything to add on that? yeah, I think I think it all depends to the you
1: know kind of the level of sophistication of the investor, but at some point, you know, having cash, or precious metals, and uh, perhaps some treasuries elaborate a little bit on this. But if you have, let's say, you know one ratio that we we really think that is is poised to rise much further is Go to S&P 500 ratio. I don't think it's too hard to position yourself in that direction. Another way to do it is, like Kevin said, uh, we, I think we put a chart on Russell 3000 versus silver. It's near all time highs and just kind of formed a double top. And it, it looks really interesting as a, a technical, fundamental and macro trade as well. Now, in going even further on the treasury's part, we think that uh, one trade that is kind of interesting, uh, unfortunately, it's, it's got to be a little bit more sophisticated. To do that, it would be getting long U.S. Treasuries and short German bonds, as we think that those rates will likely converge or at least narrow the spread. You look at historically those spreads; they tend to to narrow as as the crisis unfolds, and it's usually because of some sort of safe haven kind of flow towards treasuries that is higher than towards German bonds, perhaps because of the the dollar being a more stable currency and, and so, so many possible answers to why that spread narrows every time a, a recession or a bear market starts to, uh, to unfold. But I think that those are maybe some interesting parts. And I, I mean, obviously, or portfolio is going in an even higher way of, unfortunately, most people won't be able to probably do this trade, which is being long gold. In U1 terms, and that's a little bit more difficult. But even even in a higher level, would be long gold in U1 terms versus global stocks, and uh, that's that's what we call the the macro trade of the year. we will be happy to elaborate more on this, but but that's essentially the way 80% of our portfolio is positioned today. is is being long gold in, in Chinese currency terms. So as the Chinese currency t- uh, the values versus the dollar, that will increase the value of gold perhaps in 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 local currency terms, and therefore as global stocks. Also sell off that ratio is is likely to rise and uh, we have several charts kind of going back in history and and showing that relationship when the market tumbles and in, in places like the China at least and all the way back to the 1990s and quite quite interesting research
0: it seems to be a good hedge to. Market frictions, but maybe we should launch as the ETF. That's a good idea. Cambria put out the long gold in uh, one term, short stocks. As you guys look around the world, we got to start to wind down here soon. This has been a lot of fun, but as you think about some of the fundamental inputs and indicators, we've talked about some kind of widely discussed ones. The cape ratio, obviously, we love yield curve, which I imagine is probably the most talked about one in the media right now. Are there any other kind of wonky ones you guys look at or ones that maybe you interpret differently or anything that you think is is particularly useful that either other people aren't aware of or they don't talk about or they use incorrectly? Any fun ideas there? One that we really like to
2: look at is is uh, consumer confidence. And a lot of people you know, will look at the market today. And I think this is why the majority of the people really fail to see the top of a business cycle is normally the top of business cycle. Everything looks great. You know, low unemployment, high consumer confidence, stock price is do, doing well. People's portfolio is looking good. And they say, well, how can a recession be around the corner? But that's the, the way that it it works out almost every time is unemployment reaches a record low. Consumer confidence reaches a record high. Stocks reach record highs literally months or a few quarters before the next recession. But consumer confidence is one that right now, if you look at the two components of the consumer confidence, index, consumer confidence expectations versus present situation, when you see a big divergence in the downward and the consumer confidence expectations versus the present situation, it's been an uncanny timing signal for the top of the business cycle. And and right now, we're at a near record divergence of, of the two, almost as significant as it was in, in 2000, at the same time as the overall consumer confidence in, index is near. Near record high is something like in the 96th percentile. That's just one. I think Tavi's got another one here too, if you're interested.
0: Real quick before Tavi, the Luthold and their recent Green Book, which listeners, if you can get a hold of, this is one of my favorite reads every month, actually had a great chart on that topic and they divvied it up into um, when consumer confidence is high and low and then in which direction is it moving. And it's a really interesting takeaway where you can kind of put it in various quadrants and see just when consumer confidence kind of turns and starts to really back off that things can get dark pretty quick. Anyway, direct you guys to Luthold if you can find it. We'll post it to the show notes if they let us. All right, Tavi?
1: Well, the other thing that I think we're looking at, I think there are a lot of other uh, managers and funds have been kind of looking at this as well, but in a different way, uh, in terms of twin deficits uh, in the US with the The current account and and the government budget deficit, you know, if you add both. And the government budget, just by looking at the change in in, in public debt, like, I guess people like Jeff Gunlodge has been kind of doing. But a lot of people have been looking at that chart, the twin deficits to GDP, which is close to 8% today, a deficit, and linking it back to treasuries and the dollar. And it's, you know, it's all very interesting. But, you know, if you link with stocks, especially the S&P 500, it actually tracks each other really close. And it's just now recently kind of formed this alligator mouth between the two, and uh, which, we think it's it's kind of you know uh, telling us a story very well of this bearish thesis on, on on US equities in general. So we like this to look at this twin deficits in a it, I think there's a much better link with equities than than other asset classes and
2: the idea of of using the, the twin deficit argument to short bonds, to short treasury bonds it is an interesting one. It's just that we have so many other indicators lining up today that, that show that buying treasury bonds might actually be a good play today. But when you look at this twin deficits versus stocks, it just screams out at you that short of stocks looks like a much better way to play it.
0: You know, it's funny, I I laugh because the US, as we look around globally, it's still crazy. You look around in parts of the world where the sovereigns, even on out to 10 years, are below 100 basis points and in, in many cases negative, which is probably the biggest surprise of my career. I mentioned on this podcast, the fact that we see negative yielding sovereigns. I don't think it's something that I ever expected to see in my lifetime, but the fact that the U.S. is now a high yield market—it's like if you look at the high yield bucket, it's it's a bunch of emerging markets in Brazil and Mexico and the <laughs> United States. So I think the ten-year yield in
2: Greece went below the ten-year Treasury yield here in the U.S.
0: Wow, well, that's uh, crazy times we live in, man! But hey, that's what makes markets fun, you know, and and it's never never a dull day. You know, it's funny, as I talk about valuations, and I, and I agree with you guys on US stocks, I'm a little, we tend to have different views on foreign equities. But one of the things that any good analyst or PM spends time doing is, is trying to look for kind of, you know, opposite evidence. And on the valuation side, I say, look, you can't, I can't find a valuation indicator that says that US stocks are cheap. We always tell readers, send one in if you find one and nobody has one. Is there anything in your mind that's actually showing kind of opposite signals to your thesis where you look at it and say, that's an interesting indicator, maybe that's an interesting sign, or maybe it's just showing that it hasn't really turned yet? Is there anything that's sort of in your models are saying, well, this is bad, but it's not awful yet in regards to kind of y'all's thesis or or that you say, this is a concern in my head to our the opposite side of our trade that we think about? Anything in that general line of thought? When you dissect S&P 500 balance
2: sheet, income statement, cash flow statements today, some of the things that that really stand out beyond the valuation multiples that we already talked about are, are the fact that we're at record profit margins, we're at record free cash flow margins, and we're at record debt in terms of corporate debt. and and so there are some some things that's that still you know look okay. and ter- obviously, in terms of of profit margins have been expanding and and free cash flow margins have been expanding. but when you when you look at it and you you look at the tax cut that we had last year, I mean, it's it's understandable that you would get a big goose in in, in these margins and doing you know doing that so late in the in the business cycle. now now here we are going into q one, and the reporting season just started. Now, I, I realize there there might be some positive surprises. There usually are to analyst earnings estimates. But let's just say analyst earnings estimates come in on track th- this quarter. I mean, it's going to be a negative year over year earnings growth. And so we think there's this huge deceleration of of growth and momentum that we had after last year fundamentally creating the largest profit margins that we've ever had, the largest free cash flow margins, the most debt. It's just setting up to, to be
0: something potentially spectacular when it finally does unwind. I hear you. All right, gentlemen, as we uh, wind down our question that we've been asking everyone, and you guys both get answer this, and this can be personal, it could be with the fund, it could be good, it can be bad. What's been your most memorable investment that you can think of? And I'll let you guys pick who goes first. One that I'm most proud of
2: recently, really, is, is an idea that came from our equity model back in 2014. I presented it at a value investing conference here in in, in Denver and Vail, actually. And back in in uh, June of 2014, is this the is this the Value X? It was Value X, yeah. We presented it in video, which was scoring at the top of our model. We owned it, and I think it was like uh, it was close to 20 bucks a share. It, We held on to it for three years. After that, it was the number one performing stock in the S&P 500 for three years straight. Of course, we got out of it too soon, but we had like a five-bagger, and what's wrong with that? So that's one that I'm, I'm most proud of.
1: I'm relatively young, I guess, but I, I do have one that it was very memorable for me. It was uh, which I, I I tend to like macro more, I guess, but um, I have um, we we started really talking about China back in 2013, I think 2013 14, right before that mini deval in August of 2015, which I remember exactly. We we start kind of putting together all the whole thesis and why. We thought that the Chinese currency was overvalued. And I remember kind of putting the whole presentation together and and not a single person was talking about this. And you know, we we called the brokers and, and trying to put that trade together was it was it, it was very challenging at the time, but ended up working out. And then I, I remember exactly when when it all happened and in august was a big surprise even for us i mean we didn't think the options were going to move that much but it was end up being a, a obviously a memorable because it was a it was a great one i have other bad ones too but that one was memorable i guess because of the the size of the trade uh, and overall but obviously we still kind of continue to have the same view it was such a small move compared to what we think it's likely to happen in the future I guess that's the one that sticks in my head the most.
0: I like it. You know, it's it's funny you look back on the sentiment regarding China. I mean, the younger listeners on this podcast aren't going to remember this, but the mid-2000s, when everyone wanted the bricks. I mean, India as well and China, we got into CAPE ratios in the 40s and 60s. And every institutional dollar was just every conference you went to, everyone was brick, brick, brick. And, you know, those markets have struggled so much since. And it's been kind of, um, it's crazy to think back at about how strong the sentiment was then and, you know, how it plays out. Gentlemen, any final thoughts before we wind down and let you get to your weekend?
2: We really thank you for this opportunity to be on your podcast. It's it's great uh, talking with you. I think this China theme is is still perhaps our biggest theme that we have overall in the portfolio. We, We don't think anything has played out yet in terms of the potential yuan devaluation, and when China was was opening up and, and moving more in a market oriented direction, absolutely, it was a great growth story. I think too many people are looking back to a different time, I and mean, China is really going the other way uh, in terms of being a, a much more authoritarian communist country, centrally planned. Uh, you know, the the lack of freedoms and and the cl- they I mean, how can you have a, a market driven global trade economy with a closed capital account it's just absurd and so if if there is any risk of what might be the trigger we we think it is something with the going uh you know not to full expectations with the with the china trade deal and a lot of the the down signal economic signals that we're getting for downturn in in the global economy today you know really are coming from china coming from europe just a number of of economic indicator divergences that um that point to a slowdown, at least in, in the uh, in the global economy. And if anything goes wrong in the world, we just think it has a li- likelihood of coming out of China.
0: We didn't get to talk about it today, but it'll be interesting to see how much of an influence the increase of the Chinese equities in the various market cap weighted indexes. But that's been a topic on the other side as to potential the bullish case where people talk about flows as they increase their tradable percentage at least here in the U.S., where some of these institutions will be forced to buy some of the securities in the coming years. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, well, that's that's a counter force, no doubt. I mean, I don't know, I don't even know how China was allowed into the WTO in in the first place, let alone into the MSCI emerging market indices with so many of the non-market oriented practices that they employ, but um, such it is.
0: Well, gentlemen, this has been a lot of fun. Where do people go to find more on y'all's research, ideas, fun offerings, thoughts, all that good stuff? What's the best place to find y'all?
2: Our website is Crescat.net, C-R-E-S-C-A-T. We've got a lot of information up there. You can send an email to info at Crescat.net. Tavi and I are both very active on Twitter and social media, LinkedIn and YouTube. We've started posting little brief macro Prezos on YouTube. And so go check that out. You can find most everything just up on our website.
0: Awesome. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us today. All right. Yeah, thank you. you. Listeners, we'll post the show notes, the links, the emails, all the good charts, stuff we talked about today at Mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. You can find all the archives on there over 150 shows. We'd love to hear your feedback. Shoot us an email, feedback at the medfavor show.com please leave us a review. You love it. You hate it. Anything between and subscribe to the show on iTunes, any other place that any of the apps you like the most, Breaker, Stitcher, Radio Public. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.